Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This week, I speak with the Belgian designer and architect Theo de Meyer, whose work sits somewhere on the edge between design, art, and architecture, often reconciling the three. He and his partner, Stephanie Everhart, have become known for initiating collaborations with artists and designers under the banner of Stad van Zenken, or State of Affairs, through an approach that somehow manages to balance a collage of contributors with a clear aesthetic and sense of authorship. Demeyer studied construction before going into architecture, and from 2011 to 2019, had worked with the Ghent-based office of de Wilder van Tailleu, whose own buildings display this almost mischievous sense of bricolage that seems to characterize Theo's work as well. The pandemic was a real catalyst for Demeyer's own practice. When quarantines and social distancing were enforced, he and Stephanie began camping out with their daughter in Theo's parents' greenhouse next to his childhood home on a farm outside Ghent. It was a way to escape their small flat in the city, but it also offered this kind of blank slate for imagining new ways of living and working. Little by little, islands of domestic spaces began to emerge. A tent-shaped bedroom made of terracotta bricks, a fridge and cabinets enclosed in thick styrofoam casements, a table on legs made of stacked ashtrays, a fountain made of large forked pipes and inverted plastic skylights. As you can tell, Theo's work has this playful and at times surreal quality to it. Using a palette of materials that's often reclaimed and always readily available and easy to manipulate. They almost feel like ready-mades, where through a kind of alchemy, these everyday materials have been elevated to art. Although they are clearly meant to be used and enjoyed, it really feels like Theo's objects are made in search of new forms of leisure, conviviality, comfort, and delight. To that end, the greenhouse itself has become a venue in its own right. Refurbished in collaboration with Stephanie and her practice Dorzan, it's since played host to gatherings and exhibitions. And in a way, it's become emblematic of Theo's practice and way of working. So, last month, I took a train to Belgium to meet him there. Theo and Stephanie picked me up at St. Peter's Station in Ghent, and we drove a short distance through farmland to the outskirts of the city. A storm had just opened this torrent of rain, and taking shelter in the greenhouse, it really felt like this little haven or utopia. Even the leaking roof seemed joyful somehow, forming puddles around which clusters of large cacti and succulents were arranged. As the rain subsided and the sun reappeared, we ate lunch in the middle of the greenhouse, at a long and wiggly-shaped dinner table propped up on pyramids of breeze blocks. Before finding a place in the shade, to record our conversation. So here it is, my interview with Theo de Meyer. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. My name is Theo. Um, I'm an architect, an architect from Ghent. Um, trained as an architect, but I have uh, friends doing uh, a lot of other things. And by that I got an into an in-between person. Uh, I'm in between architecture, uh, design, arts. That's a kind of short notice of who I am. I thought it might be helpful just to talk a bit about where exactly we are. So we're sitting at a table at the end of a greenhouse looking out onto a landscape of 
all kinds of bizarre constructions. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, right in front of me is a industrial kind of flue um, propped up by masonry and emitting some kind of light that's reflecting against a mirror. Um, and then behind that is a kind of stepped brick podium with aloe and cacti growing on top of it. In the background, there's a plastic tubes that are stacked in such a way to make a fountain. And then in the very far distance is a, what appears to be a swimming pool made out of cinder blocks, veiled by some kind of blue scrim, a construction netting. So we're in a place of process. <laughs> we're in a place where things are being tested uh, and displayed. And also where situations unfold, like um, the one right now between you and I. Mm -hmm. But you grew up here. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about the history of this greenhouse in particular? Um, yes, I grew up here. So as explained, you, you explained the interior of a thousand square meters greenhouse. Around it, there is a, another house. There is a water reservoir and there is a field of two acres more, which is used by a farmer. But before it was a greenhouse which was harvesting tomatoes of three square meters, three, uh, three acres, uh, sorry. But of course, in the time of the 90s and many of those kind of business, it's kind of in between business. It's not small, but neither it's a big business. Um, but there were, um, yeah, all of a sudden there was trouble by heating. So these greenhouses are heated by gas. Um, prices went up, prices went down, and actually many of those businesses around in the neighborhood had to stop uh, for certain reasons. And at the same time, there was no new generation that was willing to take over this kind of business. So this is a family business, was run by my parents, and when it stopped, it was just a decision inside the family to keep this place within the family. Certain proud, maybe. Um, but at the same time, they did not really know what to do with it. So maybe they were hoping that one day they could build houses on top of it. But slowly it became clear that none of that would be possible. So in the sense that um, this place was abandoned for seven years, the house is rented out, the field is used by a farmer, the reservoir is used by somebody else, but this greenhouse in particular was empty and everybody used to store things in or throw their trash. And there was no kind of um, keeper who was able to keep things uh, nice or clean. So this uh, greenhouse was a certain uh, proud, but at the same time pain within a family of farmers who had to stop their business for certain reasons by many uh, farmers in the neighborhood. And it was nearly by COVID that um, Stephanie, my partner, and I, we live in quite a small apartment. Um, we were not able to go outside and so on. So at that point, we started to have the idea, let's clean up the space and go there camping. So we asked the family, can we put our tent here during summer? And a tent became quickly a brick tent and we introduced pots, we introduced the kitchen. And then after this one summer, it became out of hand because it became uh, kind of a, a special place or we discovered the uh, 
this place as being really nice or um, opening up a lot of things. As you've described elsewhere, um, it's evolved from a kind of site of respite for you and Stephanie and your, mm -hmm. your family mm -hmm. to being a place where parties are held and dinners and furnitures are made. It's an atelier now. Uh, it's also a place uh, where you teach your students. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's your office, it's your site. Mm -hmm. And I want now to try and trace this trajectory that brought you to this moment where you started your own practice. Because as I understand it, you began more from a, a position of construction. Mm -hmm. You studied, I think, first of all, at Don Bosco, which is a technical uh, school where you um, studied wood construction in particular, is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. So could, you, could we start there in a way, your construction background and how that impacted you and your thinking about architecture? Yeah, a few things to connect in that way as well. Um, what we explained here from my background and working with this kind of construction, um, the brick is something um, within this greenhouse, my family and my father, whenever there's something needed, an extra space, it was made by bricks. You see it there, you see it everywhere. Um, and I don't know, I don't think I studied construction in particular because I, I wanted to do that. Um, but I was not so much interested in farming, but as well in interested in how to make things or stack things. Or it was just something that was around us uh, whenever we were born, was to do things yourself. And that's how I ended up in this kind of construction school, which was great. Um, at that point, at that age, you don't really consider it as being interesting or being you just do what you do. Um, but at the same time, you are confronted with uh, parents who are farmers and then in your class there are sons of contractors. So there's a, a field of young people who are raised by independence. So this is just my history. And being independent, you, you know, um, yeah, working is a big part of your life, let's say. And then entering into architecture, um, I find uh, a way or there were people who showed me how to look differently to, to construction and their theory came uh, at that point and I think while studying uh, theory and practice uh, were really crossing each other where you could feel how interesting it really was having this kind of background of uh, construction and it was mainly about thinking how can you do things yourself in an easy way and an economic way. And while building or drawing a plan for a contractor, you try to reimagine yourself. How would you build it yourself when you would receive this kind of plan? So it's just mentally um, different way of drawing or thinking, or you go immediately on how can you do this kind of work. And I think this was uh, the main part of this history where I arrived as today, let's say. Could you talk a bit about when you first met Jan de Wilder and your experience working in de Wilder Vinktaille? Jan was my teacher when I was in the third year of uh, university. And uh, I don't know really what happened there, but there was a we connect in a well way. And after my year was finished, um, 
he was working uh, together with Jan Inge, uh, with Johan Inge, sorry, on um, an important exhibition for them, which was made in the Singel uh, in Antwerp. And at the same time, they were showing their project Ordos at the Vias Biennale. Um, I'm not sure, I think 2013 it was. Um, and at that point, they were looking for students who were wanted to make models. And there I arrived in the office quite soon. And in the end, I never uh, left that uh, group of interesting people, uh, which was back then an office of 20 people with very inspiring colleagues. And um, yeah, it was a, a very important part as well for me in this um, triact or this accumulation of um, how my, yeah, um, my youth until now was there, let's say. So I have been working there for 10 years within the Veldwinkteur office. I have been assisting Jan as well in the ETH in Zurich, which was an interesting addition in um, how can you work together with students, how can you work together with colleagues, how can you uh, balance a lot of things, how can you work with contractors. So um, I'm, I'm quite convinced, I'm not sure if I'm convinced, but having a place where you can learn a lot, um, having a kind of master, which you don't see so much anymore. Sometimes you are hopping from one office to the other so you can learn as much as possible. But in my case, it was really um, going very deep into a kind of profession. I'm interested to know what you learned working at De Wilderwink, tell you, what rubbed off on you that you feel like you've carried into the work you do now? Uh, we know the office, or many people know the office very well, or know what they do. But I was never drawn so much into certain uh, styles. I mean, um, if you see me working with um, normal materials, it's not because I find them particularly so beautiful or it's so helpful in a kind of language what I'm doing. But what I learned is um, quick thinking or thinking in economy of means and while making architecture, what, how can you, um, what is good architecture in certain means? I mean, do you want to have a perfectly made building? Uh, I was talking to friends lately and they have seen a building of Scarpa. And I was so totally amazed. I'm also totally amazed by Scarpa, but when you look to Scarpa, there was also a discovery of mine lately. And then I think, imagine how to build this, this thing. That's a, a really heavy process, I can imagine. I, I, can, I can only imagine that there are a lot of conflicts um, in order to perceive that kind of perfection. So in terms of um, collaboration, of process, which is not visible, it's maybe debatable, rather you could be seeing it as good architecture. So that was a kind of, for me personally, um, I, I don't make a statement that it should be true or whatsoever, but personally within collaborations, um, I felt the need in working together in a good way. Meaning having trust with a contractor is very important uh, to receive a good result, for example. And trust with a good contractor is you gain in um, communication. And um, particularly in that office, while having to do all these kind of small projects, while having to work with colleagues, 
with clients, with different parties. Communication is key and um, communicating while drawing is uh, very interesting as well. So in that sense, it was not so much the, the certain, what people like to call the style or whatsoever. It was more uh, a way of doing and I felt comfortable for myself that um, it was just something what I was good at as well with this history of technical school. And in that sense, um, communication in between Jan Ninge Jo and us was very good. We, we, we felt that we were pulling on the same rope in order to get something done in a good way. Mm. I think a lot of architects face this question at some point in their career, which is whether or not to stay and continue pulling on that rope together mm. or to find a new rope to pull, if we're going to extend that metaphor. What led you to decide to leave De Wildervink, Taiyu, and establish your own practice, your own project? Um, Without jumping too far, being raised within a company where it stopped, where we also felt the pain, being here in this kind of greenhouse, um, things are never forever somehow. Um, but sometimes when things end or relationship ends, it's also sometimes not easy. Um, but mainly the decision was um, I have friends and then they ask me something to do and then you do things yourself at the same time so you're doing more and then all of a sudden um, you feel yourself sometimes unbalanced um, and at a certain point you need to make choices and that choice has been made in the sense that um, I felt the need to, to do things myself and I was very scared to do things myself because everybody who starts their first business, it's always a difficult step. Um, but all of a sudden you need to, to make that choice and it was made. Mm. What was that first commission? There was a table I saw with legs made out of tape rolls. Well, I'll, I'll go, yeah, that's, that's the in-between. So we did many scenographies. I think all the furniture was made while. Mm -hmm. And then while uh, we started as well the Stand van Zaak. And so immediately we went from exhibition to exhibition. I think in one year we found a, a curator, which was uh, Jean-Francois. So he, he picked us up and said, okay, look, are you interested to do an exhibition? And we did 13 that year. So it was... Uh, every weekend almost going truck in, truck out with our furniture, so very intense. Wow. And uh, then, because it's also well doing furniture is totally different than architecture. Um, you are, all of a sudden you have a product and it's a different way of selling. You're selling a product, not your, uh, not a way of working, let's say. As an architect, you are, work you are selling a way of working. Um, and slowly we became curators, or they were, we have been asking to curate a fair, but at the same time uh, be a scenographer of the fair. And that fair called Belgian Art and Design Fair. So it was a very important moment on that sense. And that was COVID. And uh, during COVID everything changed quite quickly. And um, the first at that point was a bar which called Labat, it's a coffee bar. And he said, um, during COVID, actually, look, I want to uh, rethink my business. I, have to, I want to make a new terrace, but I feel the terrace is not logical anymore because nobody is allowed to sit here, um, what to do. 
and we arrived in a discussion and we debated maybe it would be a good idea to make CMI public furniture instead of uh, CMI private furniture, which could be seen as a terrace. By that stake that um, you could order your coffee, you can take it home, or you can sit on the public furniture or on staircase, wherever. So that was that idea. And during that year that I stopped, I did actually the first year everything that I really liked to do. All this kind of projects which um, I could convince clients or find people who were really believing in a certain product of mine, which we could push it to a really nice thing. And that year was very special because we made uh, Labat. I made then um, a house within an artist atelier, which is Sibren van Overbergen. It's a kind of tent with racks. Um, this is a project called Backyard. Backyard, yeah. Which uh, we can get yeah. to in more detail in a bit. Yeah. And at the same time, all of the things happened here. And seeing those kind of projects together, it's um, coming from in-between work, but all of a sudden it became a practice or serious, more serious work. It's interesting, this relationship you developed with curators and artists mm -hmm. during and after your time mm -hmm. at De Wildervinktelje, that there is this network really mm -hmm. of people and ideas that facilitated this leap of yours into mm -hmm. independent work. Mm -hmm. And I'm also interested to hear that the work you do or were doing during that time in 2019, 2020, was as much curatorial as it was formal design as we might understand it to be. That it sounds like you were, you were making, you were selecting and composing individuals and their work as much as yeah. you were fabricating objects with material. And I think to me that overlap is quite intriguing and feels in a way quite contemporary mm -hmm. that the designer is being asked or asking of themselves to do more with their sensibility mm -hmm. and that the remit of the designer is as much in composing materials as it is creating situations. Mm -hmm and events. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could talk more about Stan van Zaken, which remind me the correct translation of is, is it state of affairs? State of affairs or state of play. Um, that's also apparently a, a good translation of it. And state yeah. of play itself is another project of yours. Yeah, yeah. So maybe tell me more about Stan van Zaken, state of affairs, the, the rationale behind articulating this diffuse collective of designers in that way. Stand van Zaken came, as I explained before, was true furniture. There Stand van Zaken was made. But then we discovered that it's actually perfectly feasible to, to put it as well in different kind of collaborations. Um, we are not really curators, um, but we feel sometimes there are businesses that see that we have a certain network and by putting us as a curator, they know they will, that we will bring the network inside their network. Mm. That's mainly what we discovered, a business strategy from certain events. Mm. We are somehow um, good in connecting a lot of things together because um, that's quite important um, if something needs to be organized or it can be as well a building or whatsoever 
you have to be there to connect or bring people together in order to let something happen. So that gives us the advantage in order to do some things. Um, Stand van Zaken, um, mainly it is Dorzon and I, it started there. And then there are many people around which are architects or artists. And one here in the greenhouse, you, you are talking about the fountain or a staircase. It was at that same period, there was an artist, uh, we did a studio atelier visit of an artist we didn't know by that time, Philippe Vervaat. We had a good talk and one week after he called us that he got from the government a, a subsidy, some money, and he needed to spend it within one month and he didn't know what to do with it and he asked, can we do something together? And then uh, we got money actually to think about a kind of scenography, art installation, and we did it in this greenhouse. For me, it was really the first time that an artist invited me to do something as an, an installation other than a scenography, let's say. It sounds like a kind of agitation or you were provoked in a way you yeah. couldn't have otherwise been. Yeah through this engagement with yeah. Philippe. Yeah. I mean, the fountain, it, it really feels like a kind of ready-made, you mm -hmm. mentioned before we started recording, mm -hmm. Marcel Duchamp. Yeah. And I think there's a certain, I mean, there's a clear utility in engaging with these ideas mm -hmm. from the world of art that have such a profound consequence mm -hmm. for architects. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about other artists or other artworks you've encountered that have shifted the way you think about the work you do or the work that's possible for you to do as an architect? Well, first of all, I always like to claim that I'm not necessarily, or I am not an architect. The thing what happened is that um, artists think that I'm an architect, but architect thinks I'm more of an artist. So there was never a clear boundary. And I don't like to really claim myself as being artist or whatsoever. I, I consider myself as architect. But there's another thing of doing things yourself and um, you see an atelier but it's very basic, you have small machines and thinking to do things yourself in an easy way. I'm, I'm quite, no, I'm not lazy but in that sense in the making I'm quite lazy. Uh, I would like to make something the easiest as possible but I always forget that the thinking beforehand takes a lot, a lot of time. So by making the fountain, it's what, what I really like is to go to building shops to see certain materials, you stack them and then the work is actually finished. And the fountain, it's a, it's a pipe and then there's a roof skylight again, again a pipe, a roof skylight, a pipe and by that you make a fountain. But as kind of discovery as well in this greenhouse, if you build bricks in a certain way, it, it starts to understand it looks like a roof or maybe the, the stair, it could be seen as a pond, or by shifting, by, build, by bringing materials in a certain way together or in a particular way of form, you can introduce a different way of thinking by really easy means. And that's quite a discovery for me at that point. And so you see as well a table with four ashtrays underneath and then there is a tabletop on top. But actually the only thing what you need to do is screw the legs underneath and your table is finished. So I, I started to really like that idea in a very easy means you can do uh, a shift mentally or give your own interpretation to some things. Mm. And what we learned to, from artists 
I, I, sometimes in architecture, I felt a bit fed up in the architectural language that we always find the need to make a kind of manifest or to state that you are doing this or by, by making a building in this certain way or we are good for the climate, you, you, are, you are direct actions. And within art, you can do it reversed in certain things. You can do something, but leave open a total interpretation of what you think about. And for example, the project in Labat, the furniture, the coffee furniture, uh, many find it ugly, some find it beautiful. But in that particular case, it was very important to me that for me, this project was not a debate by nice or ugly or whatsoever. It was an idea which is represented. And for me, that is enough. There's something I want to go back to, which is when you were kind of describing the way you work just then, a moment ago. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the title of a lecture you gave a couple of years ago, which was A Roof as a Table, A Table as a Roof, mm-hmm. which tidally sums up the delight you seem to have around these confusions or these conflations of one thing for another, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a skylight or a basin for a fountain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whether it's an exhaust flue or a street lamp, um, whether it's um, a pile of bricks or a staircase or a podium. And I think most of the projects from th- that you've made that I look at there's this sensation of a flickering of meaning mm-hmm. back and forth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. between these different readings of the object. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if we could talk more about that sensation. Yeah, nice. And I think maybe another way of describing that sensation, that flickering, is this term that you've shared before, which is about the difference between believing and knowing. Mm-hmm. So. Can you unpack that phrase for me? It's so evocative and there's a lot beneath it. It has to do with an encounter you had with uh, <clears throat> a sculpture by this artist, Panamarenko. Yeah. Um, it was just a phrase about a curator, a famous Belgian curator back in the days was Jan Hoot. And he was explaining why he found Panamarenko, the work of Panamarenko so interesting. And he stated that when looking to an airplane, you do not really believe it flies, although it flies. But when looking to an airplane of Panamarenko, you believe it flies, although it doesn't fly. And for him, it was a very interesting duality between knowing or uh, like truth or what's supposed to be or what you believe uh, something can be. Mm. And I, I am, I'm very happy in that sense is that you read or, or find um, this flickering in between things that that's just our mental process on looking or while designing um, it should be there mm. so it's like a, a mental mm. a mental idea um, and what, what what helps in that idea is uh, scaling for example overscaling uh, downscaling um, for example, in the greenhouse, you see outside structures, which are all of a sudden inside. So there's also already a conflict in there. Um, yeah, many of those things you can find in certain shape. Where you, where you're on. Something which is also interesting is something has to be recognizable. 
something from the memory. Imagine, we all know the idea of the fountain, but stacking in a certain way, it's something from the memory, although you have never seen it before. So there's also a shift in that one. Mm. So it's interesting to see is that certain architects or certain artists really do not like to work with memory. Um, but in our case, it's, um, it, it helps us, this memory. On that airplane anecdote, that Panamaranko anecdote, it was so uncanny to me, actually, because I have a similar quote I want to share, or a similar anecdote I want to share that maps so oddly, clearly onto this, which is there's an, an exchange between two writers mm -hmm. in the 70s. Um, one was a realist writer, and one was a postmodernist writer. So it was between William H. Gass and John Gardner, and Gass is the the postmodernist here, really florid mm -hmm. style of writing, very surreal, baroque. And um, Gardiner is criticizing Gas in this exchange. He's saying that, you know, the difference between their prose styles is that Gardiner's airplane, as it were, will fly, and Gas's airplane is too encrusted with gold to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And then Gas responds, there's always that danger, but what I really want is to have it sit there, solid as a rock, and have everybody think it's flying. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that as a lit student, mm -hmm. studying literature, and being so captivated by that ambition mm -hmm. from a writer to create this illusion mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, well, at the same time, knowing full well that it's impossible. Mm -hmm. And this is a postmodernist sensibility mm -hmm. across mediums, across the board. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me wonder where else you're borrowing from. I'd love it if we could talk about Satsas, about Memphis, about this particular cultural moment, because it seems like this is the territory we're in now, when we talk about this, um, this difference between believing and knowing. And then again, um, um, for example, with Jan and Inge Jo, it's again not necessarily the style, but at the same time, a kind of certain attitude. And before the Memphis, um, there was a period where you have um, the radicals, like Italian radicals, a very interesting period and they were um, working very hard in the same way to bring ideas and to give shape to certain ideas and this kind of attitude was, uh, we always have seen as being quite interesting more than the... And just as a side note for listeners, yeah. Stephanie's watering the plants right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a big, is it from that canister? Yeah, it's actually a pump. Uh, it's water from, from the ground. Okay, so it's pumping up yeah. from the ground. And then it's filling, the tank is filling, and when it's empty, it's pumping again. So that's the nice thing here, is that we are fully independent as well from uh, the street. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. we're going back, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thinking and the, the knowing again. Uh, I mean, sometimes you are young and then you look to things, and uh, postmodernism was one of it. Um, 
um, such as yes, at the same time Andrea Branzi, the way how he connects nature, a tree lock with a steel plate and becomes also something new. I'm actually wondering, maybe, maybe this is a good opportunity to walk a bit. You just put that in your pocket. Let me just double check. It's still recording yet? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I can just leave this here. I might just bring one more. <coughs> Would I hear it if I smoke? Yes. No, no, that's yeah. fine. Just bring our, bring our glasses, you bring your cigarettes, and we'll go wandering. You don't mind, eh? Not at all. Um. No, I think it's a good... It's okay? It's okay, yeah. Because when I continue watering the plants, it might happen again. No, I think it's, it's actually... It gets us out of our chairs. <laughs> it just... <clears throat> if I'm doing something that's bothering you... Sure, no, we'll... All right. But as you ask these kind of questions in between uh, like Sotsas and uh, maybe the Vellering Tailleur, of course, it's all there. Um, so at the same time, it's confronting sometimes that people confront us with that because mm -hmm. it's actually there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we, um, in our practice, it's just something which always have been there and it's not necessarily on the table all the time in the sense that we look to certain aesthetics or whatsoever. So we, we try to believe as well in certain attitudes um, which are becoming interesting and the attitude of the, the postmodernism is that um, the radicals, it was really very basic people working together, people with different ideas, all of the things, uh, energy arises and there some things are happening. So it's a totally different atmosphere and you look to modernism or even to minimalism whatsoever, it was a kind of certain uh, energy and this kind of energy we, we, um, we are drawn to somehow at the same time. But at the same time we also let go and uh, we like to take things from our own memory and um, in the sense, if, if I would, would walk around, and then we have been talking about the, the ashtray already and the tabletop, but the ashtray is something where we, when you are in the hotel, I like to smoke sometimes. When you're in a hotel, you are there for five minutes, and then you notice that actually is a certain nice object, which um, has something to it. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if you look to, in, in the back, there is a, um, a chair with stacked tiles, which are turned 45 degrees. Mm -hmm. And actually that was a, when a contractor is putting a new floor or releasing a floor, he turns the, table, uh, the tile 45 degrees in order to take it more easily. Mm -hmm. And just that act is quite interesting to see. It's, it's, it, it reminds you maybe to a building of Ledoux all of a sudden. And by stacking in that way, you don't need joints, you, but you have an interesting way of stacking. And by that, uh, the chair uh, arises. I want to talk about these projects more in a moment. Okay. The chair you're referring to is okay. from the, the Neighbors exhibition mm -hmm. yeah. uh, in 2018. But before we get there, I feel like we're drifting away from the Satsas question. And I want to, <laughs> <laughs> I want to stay with it because to me, it, it's always a challenge, I imagine, mm -hmm. for any architect or any designer to know what to do with history and what to do with our historical friends. Mm. How much do you acknowledge certain affinities or relationships? And how much do you need to distance yourself from them? Mm -hmm. But I just feel it so strongly here right now. 
the, the ghost of Etora Satsas is among us. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could just tell me more about your own relationship to him, his work, what he means to you. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can have a seat here. Is it Sam Shermayev who told you? No. no? It's a funny thing because he said, actually, Theo, you design like a Torah Satsas. No, I just... That was a quote of uh, really? Sam yeah. No, it was just in particular one, one image. Huh. Um, but no, I, feel, I really see it everywhere. Like, uh, to me... And, of course, you've actually... You've mentioned him in some, intro, uh, in some presentations you've given. Mm-hmm. In particular, this um, anecdote of him in hospital yeah. playing with his pills, his medication. And then that stacking of pills becomes a stacking of lozenge-shaped mm-hmm. ceramic pieces for a, a lamp or something, and that in turn becomes a pepper mill. Mm-hmm. But there's clearly a delight in this, again, flickering between scales, mm-hmm. between objects, and between mm-hmm. forms mm-hmm. that Satsas was so well-versed in, that has a real allure to you. At the same time, Satsas was also a real impresario, mm-hmm. a real expert in convening a group. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a kind of socialite in a way as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's all these things that seem to interest you. When did you first encounter his work and how did it originally speak to you? It was the, one of the first books I bought and the most expensive books I was uh, during uh, studies. Um, and getting to know it, I think it was actually as well at that time, and somehow maybe it connects me to Stefanie. I got a birthday card of him and Barbara Radice, uh, and she gave me a certain table as a present, and maybe Satsas was almost the connector between both as well. Uh, or maybe the first thing I said to Stefanie was like, ah, look, your work is like the work of Satsas <laughs> at the same time. So I don't know, not that we are Satsas lovers, not at all, but again, this idea of attitudes is in um, looking to things in a very simple way. It's what uh, attracts us. And um, when you see or get to know the work of Satsas or even the others, somehow, or I tend to believe, I never met him, um, they like to look to things in a very nice way. I mean, um, everything can be beautiful at a certain, at a certain moment. Mm-hmm. And if you walk around in, in life and generally, and, and you stay, or if you keep your mind open in that sense. Um, I felt, looking to that work or being into architecture, it was for me liberating in thinking on how to do things or, or um, look to things connected or combined to other. And the quickness and, and the things that happen all of a sudden and boom, 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 it's there and it's there and it's there. Um, that's, um, that's a great feeling in that sense. And um, as well in, in the office of the Veldering Tailleur, it was quickly made, quickly made, and you are in a kind of drive with connections around you. So we tend to not think about it too much. We are inspired, but it's never the direct inspiration. It's just we like to acknowledge that all the encounters you have, all the, the things you feel around you, um, work with it in that sense. 
It is really something in between, which you can't point your finger at. It is now this, or it's now that, or it's now that. Actually, it's many things. So it's an accumulation of layers. It's an accumulation of thinking. And, and thinking about this kind of things, accumulation of things, stacking meanings, um, that, that was uh, new to us and interesting to us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Maybe I'm too abstract. No, eh? no, I understand. I, yeah. I think w what it makes me think of is that this greenhouse has become quite obviously a space of accumulation, that it is both a greenhouse and a warehouse. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really where you keep material that you'll use in projects. Mm -hmm. It's also at the same time an accumulation of projects. Mm -hmm. It's getting quite full of projects. It feels like a little village in a way, mm -hmm. um, with each pavilion as a kind of mini monument. As I look at you, I look beyond you and I see this chair, which is made of concrete blocks, concrete pavers, really. Tiles that um, was part of a, an exhibition design or scenography for the artist Manora Grunwald, which you did in 2018, which is called Neighbors. And um, maybe it's worth talking a bit about the chair and about the wider project. Mm -hmm. So the pavers had been intercepted in a way. They were secured for public works in a nearby town or something. And what you did as a designer is you intercepted them on their way, assembled them in various forms to make podiums and surfaces for display and furniture. And then when the exhibition ended, you then released the material back to the city and the road was constructed with them. Mm -hmm. I feel like this encapsulates this kind of layering and variety mm -hmm. um, that's inherent to a lot of the work you do. Mm -hmm. Could you talk more about this methodology, which seems to be what, in hunting, one might refer to as catch and release? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk more about that process of of inserting yourself in the flow of materials and temporarily recombining them. Maybe first on the, the way how it works, or meeting a, a guy like Manor is a, is a very generous guy. And being generous is something uh, which is a nice feeling. So you do something, you get something in return, not the way reversed. You get something in return and you do something. But in, in that sense, it's, it's like an open question. Do you want to do it? Yes or no? But at that time, young, you, there's no money. And then, of course, like you, you say yes because you are friends. You see certain opportunities. And then you have to make it happen. And you, you think on how to do it. And finding materials. How can you convince a business in order to sponsor, for example? And it's not so easy to, to as a young person, to, sponsor, to get tiles sponsored whatsoever. So the, the idea was that, okay, nobody loses. So if they, can, if they are able to get it back, the only thing which is lost is transport. 
which is not really lost because it's, it went for, it, for a pavement. And it's quite an interesting discovery at that point with that idea, everybody wins. So Manor gets his scenography, I like to do what I like to do. And the company has free advertisement. The only cost on the whole process was labor, but at that time we were young, and was actually the cost of transport, but that was the sponsoring of the company. So what happens in being generous, everybody was generous in this story and um, everybody was happy in that story. So the, the act of the scenography was about that. Um, and many of those um, encounters or, or materials we work with, for example, in the greenhouse, we went to a, a company which is called Wienerberger. We talked about the project and they also delivered us the, the stones, for example. Um, but there, there has to be uh, a return always and it's never clear what the return is. It could be money, the return could be materials or it could be publication whatsoever but mainly the return is that everybody feels comfortable in a certain way of doing and feels that there is a kind of return. Maybe it's unspoken but to keep, um, to keep that idea of the return present that's an important one. And as well, everybody we meet here or um, wants to do something or, or we do something in return. And that's a nice way of doing things yourself. There is always a return uh, somehow. And that's how it works. Um, Another example of this treating of an object is a confluence of supply chains, relationships, um, collaborations is this project state of play, mm -hmm. where there are specific objects that were assembled ephemerally, temporarily over time, and then released in a way after the event was over. Could you talk about the state of play project? Um, to create a stage for 2,000 people and the stage after the festival should be meaningful uh, for the site, for the inhabitants around. So we were thinking about how to work with the street as such and the infrastructure. So that was actually the, the main basis. And infrastructure could be seen as lightning, um, sculptures, greenery. What we also noticed, for example, cell phones are very present. And um, yeah, they're always empty. What happens if you put chargers in public space? Imagine you have a light column, but you put it full of plugs so youngsters, teenagers can group around in order to use that column. So that's mm. rethinking public space in, in a nowadays or even going monumental. That was one layer to it. Another layer was to it with our experience with institutional uh, works, for example, museums and so on. There is a group of parties. So you have the organization, you have the person who needs to uh, install it, then in this case Horst, uh, you have the, the technicians, sound, light, then you have artists, then you have us, then you have workshops, then you have a bunch of people. I think now it was 86 counted um, and that's a lot of to manage. Within this way of communication, there's always one person who doesn't believe in your project or even they knows it better. And somehow a client tend to believe a contractor more than the architect. Because when a contractor says it's impossible, it is impossible mm -hmm. somehow. So we try to find a way, how can we create something that delivers a certain way of freedom for the different parties. So we came up with an installation of 36 columns and we gave certain columns to the responsibility of each different party. One artist has one column so he can put a sculpture, so that's yours. 
the sound engineer, look, you have five columns, how much do you need? No, seven, you have seven columns, do, do your work with it. And giving responsibilities to certain parties, all of a sudden, it is there. So the only concern we had is to connect everything in a good way, to find a way how do we put everything in a certain grid that it works, but whatever what's on top of it, we, we also f felt free to trust as well the technical engineer or to trust the artist what's on top. This kind of openness to having other parties co-opt, yeah. at least part of the scheme, um, is familiar. It's somehow is a marker of a lot of work from younger designers, mm -hmm. uh, that there is an invitation to interfere mm -hmm. or to take ownership over part or all of the scheme. And always with these kinds of projects, there's a question of where the design happens and where the mark of the designer is visible, if at all. Mm -hmm. um, and some people respond, some designers or architects will respond by saying they design a system mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that then unfolds in ways that are outside of their control. Mm. And others will design some kind of physical framework that's then populated. I think in your case, it's probably more the latter, but to what extent do you, like, do you struggle to let go of these kinds of projects? Or is there a desire to retain a certain authorship or a control? How do you, how do you negotiate? It is a very difficult balance in the sense that uh, many of the projects that tend to work in a horizontal way, it, it doesn't work always or in the end it will not work as expected to be. Um, but there is a way to do it in the sense that there needs to be certain rules about it. And um, you as the architect will set up those kind of rules. So in the end you design everything but you know, you feel in your design there are certain gaps that you... That's again the, the, the talk about thinking and knowing. Um, it's, it's important to, to, to guide that part. So imagine if you put a column and what's on top. Is there any risk if there's something on top of it which you don't like that the project will bring it down? That's the first question. If there is a risk, change the, the idea. If there's no risk, you can let it happen. Maybe let's go outside for a second. That's, um, I'll open the door for a second. That's right. okay. um, yeah, but you will hear it. Um, oh, that's fine. Yeah, we can turn our backs to the wind. So you've just opened the door to the greenhouse. We're looking out to a field. There's a high-speed train that's passing in the distance. And then far beyond, there's some cows grazing. And my summer project was a new terrace next to our water pond. It's also a nice conclusion by sometimes introducing something opens up something new. Imagine we made this terrace now. So what we're looking at now is a relatively large reservoir on the farm property. Um, it's an odd shape. It's a kind of distorted triangle and it's covered in 
Is this polyurethane? Or? It's um, EPDM, they call it. Or it's like the, or it's roofing. So there's like a black roofing membrane. Mm -hmm. It's sealing it all. And we just climbed up onto this plastic panel platform. Um, there's two lawn chairs underneath a small overhang of a canopy. I feel like we need fishing rods right now. The idea is on Sunday, so we have uh, small motor boats or sailing boats to do sailing races here. And we, we like to make a fountain in here or maybe a platform to, to swim about. And um, It's also the idea of the, this company, which was not seen as leisure, but we use it for leisure now. And combining both worlds is quite uh, interesting. I think there's a sense with, to go back to Satsas, the fact that by encouraging that user to even sit in a different way mm -hmm. could somehow be suggestive of a, a whole new way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's a similar attitude here where, for example, we're sitting on this terrace and as you've, as you've just explained it, by very nature of the fact we're seeing what's in front of us differently, we're able to imagine what might be possible. Um, but does this sensibility for you apply at the scale of urbanism? It's really in our cities that we require the most imagination and speculation and um, invention. And yet, increasingly, it's the most conservative ideas that are are shaping our cities. But um, in terms of urbanism, uh, with this project, for example, you feel yourself at the very core of certain problems. I mean, um, this water reservoir you see, it was actually um, uh, collecting all the rainwater of the greenhouses, which was a lot of water and then it was reused, but now it's just here and nobody knows what to do with it. And then, for example, one year ago, previous summer, very dry summer, uh, there was a farmer who asked my family, can I use the water from this part to water my, uh, my, my fields? If not, everything will die. And they said, yes, do it. But the only thing what he did was take all the water out of it and then left so there were no certain rules and then there was a sign, kind of a fight or maybe a, a disappointment that you give something but you don't get something in return. But at the same time you, you understood that if he was not able to use this, his crops will die. And if you think if you could use this part, for example, now it's here never nobody uses it, but if you invent certain rules it can be very valuable for the farmers around here. So in, in, in this terms of um, urbanism, it's very small, but this field could be very meaningful for all the neighbors here uh, around it, in that sense. And, and you, you can think urban or you can think how to do it, but being here, being around farmers, they don't think like we architects think, or they don't think urban, but they think very local. And somehow it's a total opposite of urban thinking. And but how can you be somewhere in between or, or maybe they, they accept us being here, they know what happened, 
uh, while introducing it, it, it. Imagine all of a sudden in this village there are uh, 30 students walking here, for them it's very strange. Or, or uh, some sculptures which are standing here, it's very strange. But at the same time they, come, they are coming here and they are very curious about what's happening and then you explain and somehow they understand it because it's a normal way of stacking. Um, and that that's kind of an interesting way of connecting which could be seen as in the end a much bigger picture yeah it's it sounds like what you're describing is a cumulative process yeah. and a concern for reciprocation mm-hmm. that there's no real starting or ending but this constant give and take between what is made, how it's made, who it's for, who uses it, and what happens in return. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And to me this feels like um, it's abstract but it also is clarifying in representing this increasingly common way of designing things and it seems also like there's maybe a shift away from understanding the object as being something finite and in stasis and instead it's an artifact that's captured in our gaze in a moment in time which is here because of certain circumstances which the designer has taken care of Mm -hmm. and will probably no longer be here Mm -hmm. for reasons that the designer has again taken care of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That this transience in a way uh, is much more tangible I think with the work that you've explained. I don't know, I'm kind of feeling around for something that um, I think what I enjoy mm-hmm. about this version of that that process-driven work is that um, there is still a strong identity to it. There is still a real care for the design of the object in the end. And um, there's something identifiably there's something singular or something that speaks to an individual's imagination or interests whereas I think in other instances of this kind of work the individual is often subsumed in a much broader collective and the aesthetic of their work speaks to that as well and um, for me there's a this broader sustained tension between individual and collective expression that I think I'm trying to make amends with or make peace with but Mm -hmm. somehow it seems to find a balance Mm -hmm. in this kind of work which is both heterogeneous polyvocal has a multitude of contributors and protagonists involved but at the same time is of one sensibility Mm -hmm. and to me that seems like it's a difficult balance to strike yes (laughs) 
And I guess that must be one of the main, the, the kind of central struggles of architects and designers working today, where consultation and engagement uh, and really a sustained and earnest process of listening is part of the job now. Uh, and yet, architecture is a creative act. It needs, I think, to, to a certain extent, an author. Um, and there's a kind of ongoing struggle in asserting that, or reconciling that need for authorship with this need for collective co-creation. I don't believe so much in collectives because they become an author itself but there are many authors then and in collectives whenever we tried it there's always somebody unhappy because maybe one is unhappy because they think he did too much or they too less or, or there's like this unclear way of defining who needs to do the amount of things in order to be part of the collective and we believe more in individuals in the sense that every individual has a certain expertise and um, it's maybe having transparency about it or as you explained it listening to each other or find find a way and authorship stays important because it's a kind of sensitive thing if, if you if an artist is doing something he wants authorship but it should be acknowledged that it's just there instead of stating we are one author as a collective no we are just different different authors bringing together something different and the author is maybe you could see it like a it's a correct word dirigent it's like um, yeah like delegating a, delegating it's like who, who brings the things together and that's maybe the, the package you see or maybe the language and how, how can you bring it in a balanced way and, and of course still when you want to reach something you need to speak a certain not a vocal language but it should be clear as well um, I, I don't like so much debating durability and let's um, do workshops together and we put wood together and by that we are collectively and that has to be more to it, it has to be it's maybe bringing together expertise and that's important the good expertise, it's like a good house is done by good contractors, no? Mm. a good project should be done by good expertise and finding freedom, finding, yeah and what I'm happy with is that uh, people like you are confronting me with uh, questions I have myself at the <laughs> same time or maybe tend to arrive in a discussion where we do not actually debate shape. I'm mm. not so happy that I don't need to tell you how uh, a genius architect I am by doing certain acts in certain buildings. Uh, it's not about that, no. It's more about um, how how do you do it or how does it end and what you feel is it just accumulation of everything what happens your encounters what you managed in in youth which is now this greenhouse everything st stacked on top of each other makes what this practice is today i'm interested in this disdain for the idea of the manifesto 
um, or the assertive agenda. Instead, it's a much more passive approach to design that you've been explaining or that we've explored by walking through the greenhouse and by being here now. Again, it's, um, I think it's a repulsion that's shared generationally. Mm-hmm. This suspicion of one unified overarching methodology or mm-hmm. um, conviction. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about your suspicion of manifestos or am I actually mischaracterizing things? Uh, no, not necessarily. I don't have a certain suspicion. I like manifestos, although I'm always careful with manifestos because I feel that I can also always be wrong. <laughs> and, um, I like to be wrong at the same time. Uh, I, sometimes I'm naive. Maybe my talking could be naive. My, the start of the greenhouse was naive. My, my practice could be seen as naive, uh, but at the same time very precise. But um, I also felt by doing, starting these kind of things without maybe having too much of a manifesto, it leads to something valuable in the end. Um, my manifesto could be is really taking care of things. I mean, taking care, that's important. Uh, without care, it, again, it loses strength. And in the end, everything, what we do is very hard work. The only worry could be is that every month there is a new thing and so i i need to count on um, uncertainties always i don't know what will be there so i need to trust about it Mm. and sometimes that's tiring Mm. and then i need to wonder shouldn't i go for bigger projects so i get an office which i know for the three years i'm safe but at the same time i feel that's not really my practice at the same time so that balance could be interesting to find in, in how can I um, relax a little bit more but at the same time this kind of um, thing is giving also the power of the practice uh, like acting quick on uh, this kind of process um, so I'm wondering if it will still be possible if you go in a more relaxed mode <laughs> I don't know that could be an interesting search uh, on how to bring that in a durable uh, way. We didn't touch on teaching actually, but that might be helpful to cover. So you were teaching with Jan de Wilder at ETH up until 2019? Uh, 2020, yeah. Uh, 21, actually, yeah. yeah and where are you teaching now? In Ghent. It's a university in Ghent, uh, St. Lucas, called Kau Leuven now. Yeah, yeah. And what, what is the studio about? Um, I have a bachelor studio and a master studio. Uh, but my bachelor studio is... Um, the, the assignment is solo duo, it's called solo duo. And it's about a solo show, duo show, you could see how you how do you work together with an artist or with somebody else? So, solo duo. Okay. Solo duo. Yeah. So you have in, in in art terms, you have a solo show, or you have a duo show, or you mm-hmm. have a group show. Um, but the assignment is actually that I select thirty books of artists and I put them on the table. The students can choose one, 
And then the first assignment is that they need to learn from the artists, they need to copy the work, they need to understand how they work and they need to make an exhibition for them, curatorial, uh, will it be a group exhibition, like, um, uh, yeah, which time frame of the work will you show, how you will show it, and then how can you make a good scenography or put it in a good way. Uh, the, second ex uh, the second part of the exercise is now make uh, an atelier or the, the residence of the, of the artist inside that exhibition room. So all of a sudden you as an architect confront yourself with the work of the artist. Mm. The interesting part is that, um, yeah, what, what do you do? Do you copy the work? Do you do something against it? Do you find correlations? Do you uh, to think about how do you position yourself towards a strong identity, for example, could be Richard Serra or another artist. And then there's a very, very interesting clash. Mm. And um, we like to teach in that way is that um, I divide my students in two groups, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And I don't like to talk. Um, they present, everybody has to listen and they have to um, give comments. It's an exercise in how can you pronounce something you don't like? How can you talk? Or how, how can I tell you that uh, I like it? Critique. Yeah, how do you critique? And the beginning is very difficult, but at the end I don't even need to talk. They, they do it immediately. They, they try to find, look, you, you, you did that and, and by you doing that. And I see the previous work and and then so they find their own connections and what you feel is that they become more confident also in the presentation they do less statements but they, they guide you through the work and mm -hmm. find this kind of correlation so um, I'm happy I'm very happy with that exercise because it helps to open again a lot of debates mm -hmm. and um, and you end up with uh, um, very strange objects next to artworks mm. and and yeah. It's interesting, you're gravitating towards scenography and the teaching, um, which is where the majority of your work is focused now in practice. Scenography feels like another one of these flickering subjects because it's not architecture. It's not really interior architecture, it's something else, but it's also both of those things. And it's also, to me, an idea about urban life in miniature, the way we move through space and encounter things, ideas, people. There's this real pleasure in doing away with this distinction between art and life that I sense is what you're getting at in this landscape that's unfolded inside the greenhouse. It's both of those things. These are sculptural objects, but they're also bedrooms and kitchens and showers. And what's nice is that this year is that artists started to invite me to, to make sculptures. So, and now there's a commercial gallery as well who invited me. So in that sense, they, they also start to accept me so you're, you've been embraced by artists, you've been accepted by this kind of establishment. 
I wonder how much would it matter for you to be embraced by a farmer again? For your work to have value to that kind of person? Why? something to discuss with a therapist <laughs> in the <laughs> sense that how much do you want to be accepted by somebody else <laughs> but that uh, there is something interesting to it for example my family are farmers so there is also a kind of distance but I, I feel I feel very happy if I'm able to come close again in the way of talking and it's a totally different way than we are talking, but sometimes you um, you arrive in certain understandings why things are difficult for me or for them. Or, or and, and if you get together in a kind of way of talking that you understand each other, it could be any profession, which is very which is very nice, which I love to do. Mm. Um, without putting yourself in, that's maybe a good a good discussion as well. Is the the, the hierarchy. In what's important and what's not important, mm. we feel so much hierarchy, and in, in, in what is arts, what is lower arts, what is important, what is design, design, art, and the architecture. And from architecture, you can't claim to be an artist. There are so many uh, things you shouldn't take in account. But imagine you could arrive in a certain place where you don't need to debate hierarchy what's more important than the other but the work itself is good as such without any debate whether it's it's positioned as higher or lower but it's good as such and if, if you could and that, that that's an, that's a difficult and interesting part what is class like in a place like belgium i know it's so it's so present in the uk um, less so in North America, mm -hmm. but um, it's present in the way people speak, um, the kind of confidence they've inherited, um, the way they carry themselves, and ultimately the opportunities that are afforded to them. It's present in taste, mm -hmm. sensibility. Um, but what is it like here, and is it something you're conscious of? having come from um, come from the farm into the university now working with artists and galleries are these different worlds to you are you self-conscious of that or is it all on this kind of equal footing like you're longing for your work to be perceived Sometimes you connect, sometimes you don't connect. Sometimes you connect with high class, sometimes less. Sometimes it's, it's just depending who you're connecting with. I'm not connecting very well with um, people where money is a thing, which is the only thing. And, but I should try to be more <laughs> connected with them. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. What what's what's a, what's maybe the most difficult part, or maybe that's something very personal. After when my father stopped the business here, he became concierge for a castle owner who was very very rich, and um, he had uh, his own business. And all of a sudden, he had to work for somebody who was very very rich 
for me that was very hard to see it was very hard to see is that you became your own boss or your own control and then you have to work for somebody like that was a difficult one for me so even there it could be see myself without knowing I had discussions with my brother as well what's nice in my case I don't own a car I don't own a house I don't know anything in that case I have nothing but at the same time I have everything so if I decide next year I want to move somewhere else I can do that so in that sense I'm much much more free in that sense and I also like to believe it, it would give me a burden to have a big company with responsibility for 20 collaborators or because I also saw uh, what happened here and and also how, how yeah it can ruin up your because also I'm, I'm a believer in what I'm do I'm, I'm not a businessman in that sense that my business is just a product to earn my money I, for me what I do is what I am in that sense and if I would lose that one it would be a, would be a difficult one yeah. So I'm also in that pace looking how can I feel myself comfortable in knowing it can always go different directions. I see also artists who are very young, very successful. At the same time, the gallery says, oh, you're not so interesting anymore. They become in mid-career, they become forgotten. But the good point is in architecture, I am totally uh, controlling my own business in that sense. There's no gallery who can state that uh, my work is not sold anymore because I am selling my work myself. And that's also an interesting position I find. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of yeah. autonomy in life. Yeah. Not being independent too much from people who control you or maybe even assets who control you or, or whatsoever. Finding a way to navigate. And the more and more you do it, you become very creative with it. There's a lot of dimension now, I feel, to this discussion. And I'm uh, just grateful for your generosity, really, and openness. But I'm quite happy with the route we followed, even literally, to come out here was a great idea. <laughs> Shall we leave it there? Yeah, it's good. Okay. It's, uh, sorry, you have a lot of work now. <laughs> Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Theo DeMeyer and Stephanie Everard. Special thanks this week to Sam Tremayev, as well as the Belgian Embassy in London, who made the trip to Ghent possible. Thanks as always to Skandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.